Hey everyone, Shannon here. Welcome to the first of two bonus episodes covering the U.S. Bishop's Letter on Racism, Open Wide Our Hearts, written in 2018. Today we're going to be covering the introduction to the letter as well as the first section called Do Justice. I hope this overview will help you better understand the document as well as help you grow in faith, hope, and love in Christ Jesus. So without any further ado, let's get into this letter. In the introduction, the bishops begin by reminding us that we are all one in Christ Jesus through his death and resurrection. We are all called to salvation, but they also remind us that sin still affects our world and our lives. Even though Christ has defeated sin and death, it's still present in our world. Racism, they say, is a particularly destructive and persistent form of evil affecting our country. And they define racism as a conviction that one's own race or ethnicity is superior, and therefore those outside the group that we inhabit are inferior and unworthy of equal regard. This attitude, they say, leads to acts of exclusion, discrimination, and mistreatment, acts they specifically call sinful, stating racist acts violate justice and reveal a failure to acknowledge the human dignity of all. The bishops point out that racism comes in many forms, deliberate sinful acts committed by both individuals and groups, as well as sins of omission. When individuals, communities, and even churches, they say, remain silent and fail to act against racial injustice when it's encountered. They also point out that racism can be subconscious, built into our brains by societal influence and culture, even when it's not our explicit personal value. You might often hear this called implicit or unconscious bias. An example of this would be perhaps a woman who instinctively clutches her purse tightly without thinking about it when a black or Hispanic man walks by. These are things that have been drilled into our subconscious by our culture that we don't necessarily control or even agree with, but they have affected us and create an unconscious bias in our mind. The bishops also remind us that racism can be institutional. We sometimes call this structural racism or systemic racism. This is when institutions uphold and or advance discriminatory practices against another group. These acts build on each other into a cumulative effect that codifies injustice and violence against a specific group. One example of this you may know of is redlining. Redlining was the practice of outlining specific neighborhoods in red in which black people and other people of color were not allowed to buy housing or to rent housing. This has led to our current segregated communities in many cities, especially in the North, and we continue to perpetuate those in many ways by staying in those communities or perhaps saying, I want to move here because there are people who look like me, who talk like me, who act like me, who think like me, people who share my socioeconomic status, or perhaps this is where the good schools are and I want my kids to go to good schools. There's certainly nothing wrong with sending our kids to good schools, but how often do we choose to live in communities that are monocultural because funding for schools in poorer neighborhoods, which are often predominantly neighborhoods of color, have allowed those schools to fall behind, to not be able to attract the best teachers, to not be able to deal with their under-resourced populations, 
to not be able to feed children who walk in the door? How many of our reasons are culturally conditioned by racism in ways we don't even understand? I would also add one critique to what the bishops say here, that racism is not just an attitude of individuals or groups. It also inherently requires one group to have power over another. Anyone can discriminate on ethnicity or skin color, but racism places one group in power and structures society to keep them in power. We can see a good example of this in the Trail of Tears or the Long Walk for the Navajo. This forced removal from native tribal lands was preceded by a systematic portrayal of indigenous Americans as savage, uncivilized, or subhuman. It allowed the U.S. government to have popular approval from people of European backgrounds to force Native tribes to sign treaties under threat of death, as well as to use military action to force tribes from their Native lands and move them to different locations in the United States. This then allowed European settlers to claim the lands and gain power, wealth, and prestige through landholding that they had no access to before. Another example of this is the sale of the 272 slaves that were sold to create an endowment for Georgetown University. You can look this up. There's a long history created by Georgetown itself that gives the whole story of what happened to the various slaves who were sold and how the money was used to build and endow Georgetown into the future. These are both examples of how racism advanced the power and prosperity and well-being of one group at the expense of the other's human rights, and they do so by exercising power. Another example of how racism is based in power is that people in an oppressed group can gain power in the system by committing racist acts against members of their own group. A sad example of this from Black history is the example of brown bag churches. Brown bag churches were churches that would ask everyone coming in to worship there to stand next to a brown paper bag. They would measure whether or not the skin color of that person was lighter or darker than the brown paper bag, and if they were darker than the brown bag, they would not be allowed to enter. This allowed these congregations to assimilate further into white society, to be allowed to do more things, to be allowed to be more accepted by white society, and therefore gain power within the system. I also wanted to point out a short little mention that the bishops have in this document. They call racism near the end of this first introductory section, the original sin of our nation. And I think this is a very helpful framing of how to understand racism through the lens of our Catholic tradition. If you want to read a further explanation of this idea, I highly recommend the book Racial Justice and the Catholic Church by Father Brian Massingale, who first posited this comparison between original sin and racism in America. As most of us probably remember, original sin in the Catholic tradition refers to the understanding that our fallen nature is passed from generation to generation, that because of the first choice against God's love, because of that first sin, our human nature is born into a state of sinfulness that we cannot overcome by our own efforts, only by God's grace. Through that first sin, our relationship with God, with creation, and with each other was ruptured. Along with this, we can also see that each individual sin that we commit builds on the rest. So that sin with a capital S or evil with a capital E are something that exist outside of ourselves. They become their own entity, which we individually did not create, 
but with which we as human beings, both as individuals and as a society, must contend. Racism in America is much like our understanding of original sin. It is both the choice of individuals and groups. It is also something that we did not create, but that exists outside of ourselves. It is something which has existed from the beginning of our country, which we living today did not choose, but we also must live with its effects. It's something that we have inherited from generations past, and we cannot overcome except with God's grace. Ultimately, only the gospel can combat the sin of racism, but each of us must also work to eradicate it, both individually in ourselves, through our growth as human beings, through our prayer, through our penance, through our participation in the sacrament, but also as a society, through policies, legislation, social action, working in our churches and communities, and all the other ways that we can think of to bring about God's kingdom on earth. This idea of trying to overcome racism through our own individual and collective work also leads us into the second section of the letter called Do Justice, which talks about how we as Christians can acknowledge the sin of racism in our midst and begin to do justice to our brothers and sisters affected by it. First, the bishops remind us that a just nation recognizes and respects the legitimate rights of individuals and peoples. These rights they point out have existed before any society existed because they are rooted in our inherent dignity as persons created in the image and likeness of God. Another way of saying this is that laws and societies do not create human rights. Rather, laws and societies are created to ensure human rights are met. We also know as Christians that our one God is a trinity, three persons in one God, a communion of love. To say that we are made in the image and likeness of God means also that our human nature is made for communion. The fullness of our identity as humans is found when we love God with our whole being and love our neighbor as God loves them. This right relationship with God and neighbor, rooted in our identity as reflections of the divine life of the Trinity, is the original meaning of justice, and it was the original gift of God to all humans before the fall. As we discussed just a few minutes ago, original sin broke these right relationships. This brokenness is truly seen in the sin of racism, which places power over others above the communion that should be found in our common humanity. The bishops note that racism still persists in our nation because this inclination to sin has festered in our institutions and eroded the sanctity of life. Racism is a problem that is too often overlooked, ignored, or superficially mentioned without real atonement, reconciliation, or education to prevent its spread. We can also see that racism is a particularly repugnant part of the way the culture of death has crept into our nation. Whether we are talking about the protection of life at conception, fair economic policies which care for the poor and vulnerable, the enforcement of laws and the death penalty, access to health care or end-of-life issues, People of color are disproportionately more likely to experience discrimination and injustice in every single one of these circumstances. For example, black mothers are four to five times more likely to die in childbirth than any other race in America. This has nothing to do with our standard of health care and everything to do with racism that unfortunately pervades even our medical care 
Another example that Allison pointed out to us a few weeks ago is that indigenous American women are 10 times more likely to be sexually assaulted and murdered than any other race. In addition, 25% of Hispanic people in America have no access to health insurance, whereas for white people, that statistic is only 8%. Just from these few statistics, we can see that when the bishops say that though our progress in civil rights has come a long way, we cannot say that our current situation meets the standard of justice, and we can agree with them when they say that God demands more from us as Christians. To live up to our call to justice, they say, we must listen to the voices of those directly affected by racism. We must not ignore the tragedy and injustice they have suffered and we have to be honest about our history. They focus particularly on three groups that have experienced racism in our country. They talk about the histories of indigenous Americans, black Americans, and Hispanic Americans. We're not going to cover all of these histories, but I did wanna give you some questions to reflect on after each section and to reflect on what these histories mean for our life of faith. First, for the section on Native Americans, Think about, was there anything in this short history that was new or surprising to you? What are some ways we still see racism affecting the Native population in the United States? When you read about the boarding school period of Native history, how did that make you feel? And you probably noticed that in addition to native saints like St. Kateri Tekakwitha, the bishops also included St. Winnipero Serra, who, if you listen to our season finale in season five, Allison pointed out was a bit problematic for native people. How do you think we should deal with saints like St. Winnipero Serra, who may be problematic for native populations, versus a native saint like St. Kateri or Nicholas Black Elk, who's also mentioned here? Reflecting on the experience of African Americans, how do you think we still see the legacy of slavery at work in our country today? The church in America, as we know, owned slaves, segregated schools and churches, denied vocations and sacraments to black people. How does that change the way we understand the experience of black Catholics? What responsibility does the church have to make amends for these actions? How does it change our efforts to evangelize and serve in Black communities? And finally, looking at the Hispanic American experience, how does our nation dehumanize Latino people, especially undocumented immigrants? What policy changes could we enact to change that reality? Where do you see racism against Hispanic and Latino peoples popping up in our church today? How can we make Hispanic people feel more welcome in our churches beyond only adding a mass in Spanish, although that's very important? Finally, as we reflect on the experience of all our brothers and sisters of color and those not mentioned here, such as people from the Pacific Islands or our Asian brothers and sisters, what are some ways that we as Christians can help combat the effects of generational racism on our brothers and sisters of color? Thank you so much for listening to part one of our overview on Open Wide Our Hearts. We'll be dropping part two in just a few days. I look forward to talking with you again then. Bye.